And last week, if you were with us, we were in Nehemiah 8, and here's what took place. In Nehemiah 8, there was a worship service. All of these things have happened. The, the wall has been built, and the people are celebrating. It was built in 52 days under God's help. And it was such an extraordinary feat that it says that, that the foreigners and those that were outside of Jerusalem and were not a part of the people of God were terrified because they realized that at God's help, they had built the wall. And so they gather together for this worship service, and it says they come together as one person. And we talked about last week that in Nehemiah 8, you see the importance of corporate worship, that what takes place here on Sunday night at 6 p.m. really matters, that we gather together as individuals with different pain and different struggles and different backgrounds, but yet we gather as one people, as one family that there's unity in what takes place in corporate worship. And we talked about some of the elements that you see in Nehemiah 8, that there's reverence. There's a reason why we stand when we read Scripture, because we're revering God's Word as they did in Nehemiah 8. And we respond with the Word of the Lord, thanks be to God, because we're thankful that we have God's Word. We talked about how corporate worship involves being audible, as you see in the passage from last week. And so we sing and we respond verbally, that it's also expressive Meaning there are times where we open our hands or we raise our hands or we bow our knee, bow down to our knees. And then lastly, we saw that corporate worship, actually the outflow of it is into small group worship. As we saw last week, as they were gathered together as one, they broke into small groups or community groups, which is why we place a value on gathering together throughout the week in small, intimate community groups. And the thing that we said that was really important is that the reason that we gather together and we worship and we celebrate is not because we're trying to be really good people or we're trying to be good Christians or we're trying to be 51% good because 49% good doesn't get you to heaven. You've got to be 51% good, right? The reason that we're gathering together has nothing to do with religion. It actually has everything to do with the reality that we have been saved by grace, that we have been forgiven, that God has done what we could not do. And so out of joy, out of celebration, out of gratitude for God and what he's done, that is why we gather. That is why we come seek the Lord and we praise him as one people. That's why we gather together in community groups. It's because of what God has done. And so what happens in Nehemiah 8, when they have this worship service, is right after that, in our passage tonight in Nehemiah 9, they reinstate a festival that was a part of the Jewish culture. It's one of the three main festivals. It's called the Festival of the Booths or the festival of the tabernacles. It would take place at the end of the agricultural year, and it was a festival of celebrating God's provision. Here's what they would do. They would gather a bunch of sticks and branches and some mud and whatever they needed, and they'd build these little temporary shelters, these booths. And they put them on the roof of their house because the houses were flat. They had flat-roofed houses with a staircase going up to the top. So they put these little temporary shelters up there that they made, And then for seven days, they would live in them. So they would forsake all of the comfort and the luxuries that are contained within their house. And they they would live, the family would live in these little shelters up on the roof. And here's why. Because they would remember and reflect upon all the ways that God had delivered them, had been faithful, had provided for them. It was symbolic, actually, of all the way back in Egypt when God rescued the people of God from Egypt brought them through the Red Sea, and then they were in the wilderness, and they were living in these temporary shelters, moving around. And yet God brought food and water and moved them from place to place and provided for them. But they wouldn't only reflect on what happened hundreds of years ago. They would actually also reflect on the ways that God was specifically 
gracious and compassionate and faithful to them in their life. What has God done in my life in the last year? How has he been compassionate and good? So they live in these little shelters. I thought, man, that would be awesome, right? To like get a, I don't know about sticks and branches. I don't know how to do that. But I'd try to figure it out and we couldn't do it on our roof. We had to do it on our balconies, right? So we'd be living on our balconies for seven days. To me, that sounds like a great time. That may sound miserable to you, but maybe we should try it. We'll have the Festival of the Booze next year and nobody will do it. But what happened, right, was that they would sit up here and they would contemplate the salvation that came from God. That God has not only saved their soul, but he's also saved their life. He has changed their life. And they would reflect for seven days upon this. There's a passage uh, in Romans 8 that I think is so beautiful. And it talks about the reality that God has, through Christ, saved your soul. Here's what it says. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing... Nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. See, salvation from God in the work and the person of Jesus Christ is a soul salvation. This is the gospel that God has saved you. He has delivered you. He has provided for you, not based on anything that you've done, but based on the life, on the death, and on the resurrection of Jesus Christ that has been given to you in grace and is accessed through faith. By grace through faith, you have been saved. Not based on what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. This is the good news for humanity. This is what, we, what it means when we say the gospel, that you believe and you trust in faith in this reality. And the promise is, is that you are saved. Your soul is saved. Nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing you do, nothing anybody else does to you, nothing that happens in the rest of your life. If you believe in the reality of that truth, nothing can separate you from God. But here's the truth about salvation. It's not only a soul salvation, it is a life salvation. Look what Jesus says in Luke 5. Jesus spoke up and he said, who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? I'm here inviting outsiders, not insiders, an invitation to a changed life, change inside and out. So here's the reality, right? That the gospel, the reality of who God is, And his grace applied to you is not only something that delivers your soul from harm and destruction and ultimately death, though it does do that, but it changes your life. It enlightens you to truth. It changes your desires. It changes your pursuits. It changes the way that you live. It actually saves your life. And so what happens is, is that salvation of your soul actually leads to the thing that's really difficult for us, which is repentance. A desire to live a changed life, to live more like Jesus. There's a quote I want you to turn to the very front of your worship program because it's an incredible, beautiful quote from James Boyce, his pastor and theologian. And the, the last part of it says this Those that have been forgiven, okay, those that have received salvation by grace, their soul has been saved, are softened and humbled and overwhelmed by God's mercy, meaning you come to the place when you realize that God has given you an unbelievable gift. You are softened and overwhelmed at God's love, that nothing can separate you from God's love. And they are determined to never sin against such a great 
and fearful God. Notice that repentance, a desire to live a changed life, is not out of a desire to be religious or a desire to be really good or a desire to be a really moral and upstanding Christian. The response of repentance to live a changed life is out of the understanding of love. God's love is so great, it softened my heart. Why would I want to sin against this God? How could I? But they do sin, right? That's the reality. (laughs) We do sin. We are flawed. We are failed men and women, and we will sin every day and all day long for the rest of our lives. But in their deepest hearts, they do not want to. And when they do, they hurry back to God for deliverance. You see, sin may be inevitable in our lives. But what happens when you come to find the deliverance of Jesus Christ through faith as God has given you grace is that you realize and your heart is changed as you don't want to sin anymore, though you know you will, but every time you do and when you do and when you recognize it, what does James Boyce say the response is? It's repentance. It's to run back to God and to ask for deliverance once again. And this is exactly what happens in Nehemiah 9 in this passage. The people of God have been worshiping. They've been praising God for his goodness and his faithfulness. Now they've been sitting in these temporary shelters up on the house. They've been reflecting on all that God has done, not only in the past, but presently with helping them rebuild the wall in 52 days and bringing together the community that was so disjointed beforehand. And everyone had a place and was using their time and their talent. People were giving treasures a beautiful thing. And they're realizing this was all at God's hand and by God's strength. And they're overcome. And their desire is to change the way that they've been living out of a realization of God's grace. I like to think of repentance as this, gratitude leading to a life change. Repentance can be like a scary word or like it sounds like guilt and shame and like you're a failure. But what if repentance was gratitude leading to life change? Out of gratitude, you begin to change. Look at the passage in verse one, it says this, on the, Then on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel gathered for a fast, wearing burlap and faces smudged with dirt as signs of repentance. So what's happened? They've been sitting up in these booths. They've been reflecting for seven days on God's provision, his salvation, his deliverance, all the things that he has done for them in their life and in the past but most notably recently, and they've been overwhelmed, they've been softened, they've been changed by God's faithfulness and his goodness and his compassion. And so they begin to ask themselves, how could we continue to live the way that we're living in light of the fact that God has been faithful to us when we have been faithless? He has been compassionate to us when we have wanted nothing but our own interest. They realize that they're in the predicament that they were with the walls being broken down, the community being disjointed, and the people scattered everywhere because of their own sin, because of their rebellion and rejection of God. And so as they're processing this, this gratitude over God's goodness to them, they repent. And it's interesting here because their repentance is visible, right? It says that they wear uh, burlap and they smudge their faces with dirt, which was a cultural sign of repentance. And please, next week, do not show up with burlap and your faces smudged with dirt, looking like a Jawa from Star Wars, okay? That would be really weird. This is not culturally acceptable now. But the question is, is repentance visible? That's a very important question to ask. Is repentance visible? You don't have to wear burlap, put dirt on your face, but is it visible? I think... It certainly is visible. 
if repentance is gratitude leading to life change? It's to be evident. Because what happens in this passage is that their repentance isn't just like, okay, guys, we need to repent. Let's put some burlap on. Let's put some dirt on our face. Okay, we did the repentance thing. We're good. Let's move on. They actually change their actions. They take steps and make some hard decisions. It says that the Israelites broke off all relationship with foreigners. They stood up and they confessed their sins and their iniquities of their parents. You may think, man, this seems really drastic. Right? So their response to their sin is that they break off every relationship with anyone that is not a Jew, that is not an Israelite, that is not part of God's family. And so you may be asking yourself, okay, does that mean that repentance means not having any friends or being in relationship with anybody that's not a Christian? Why would they cut off relationships with all of these people that seem to have been friends of theirs. See, the issue for them was not that they were friends with foreigners. The issue was that the foreigner's culture and their belief system had not only influenced, but had replaced their belief system and their culture. They began to not only say, there's some things that I value about this other culture and way of thinking, but they actually adopted it and replaced it They took God's culture and threw it out. They took the belief system of faith and trust in the one true God. And they said, we're done with that. They began to worship idols. They took idols and put them all over the temple. So they were worshiping these statues and making sacrifices. And the temple was, you know, you walk in, pick and choose your God. Who do you want to worship today? Where do you want to sacrifice? What do you want to do? They began to really enjoy this way of life. This was a culture they wanted to uphold. They wanted to live. They could choose whatever they wanted. They could do things that they weren't allowed to do before. And they were so blind that the people of God actually ended up being okay with and actually performing child sacrifice. That's how far they went. They were okay with it. Because this was a foreign culture that they had adopted and had become their new culture. To where that was acceptable. And so what happens is God sends them into exile. That's the consequence of their sin. They've said, God, I want nothing to do with you. We're going to live this way. We're not going to believe in the things that you say to believe in. We're going to believe in any God that we want whenever we want. We're not going to value your culture, the way that you've called us to live. We're going to live however we want. And so they go to exile. And the walls are broken down. The temple is destroyed. And all these things happen. And then God brings them back from exile, helps them rebuild their walls and restore their community. Can you imagine what they were thinking? Why in the world would God care? We wanted nothing to do with him. We started worshiping other gods. We were sacrificing children. And God was compassionate to us. He brought us back to Jerusalem. He helped us rebuild the walls in 52 days. And he restored our community. And now there's joy and excitement again. And we did nothing. Actually, what we did was stiff arm God and go our own direction. Why would God even care? Why would he just not be done with us? Put an end to us. See, it's here that out of gratitude, as they're reflecting upon what God has done, out of gratitude, they begin to repent. They begin to change their actions and their minds and the way they think. They begin to reform their culture and go back to believing what Scripture has called them, their faith has called them to believe. And the necessary step for them was that they needed to cut ties with foreigners. That's what they had to do. 
And here's the reality of repentance. Repentance oftentimes requires tough decisions. It does. You don't want to hear that, but that's true. Okay, I'm going to give you a few examples. If alcohol is a struggle for you, repentance may mean dumping out everything you have in your house and then asking your friends not to invite you to go get a drink. If porn is a struggle for you, then repentance may mean asking a really good friend to limit everything on your phone and your computer and then holding the password so you can't. If sex is a struggle for you, then repentance may mean being home every single night by 9 o'clock. If social media is a struggle for you, then repentance may mean deactivating your account. If coveting is a struggle for you, then repentance may mean giving away your money. If selfishness is a struggle for you, then repentance may mean signing up to serve. If gossip is a struggle for you, then repentance may mean asking your friends never to tell you anything about other people. If spending time with God is a struggle for you, then repentance may mean joining a community group and asking your friends to hold you accountable that you spend time with God each week. If spending time with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse or a friend is a struggle for you, then repentance may mean not turning on the TV when you go home and scheduling something to do with them every single week. See, sometimes repentance requires tough decisions, and oftentimes repentance means that you're going to have to cut ties with something that you actually cherish. But unlike the Israelites and the Jews in Nehemiah, who are called to cut ties with foreigners, actually, Scripture encourages and charges us, in light of the New Testament, that we are not to cut ties with those that do not believe the same things that we believe or do not live by the same culture that we abide by. Instead, actually, the New Testament tells us that we are to enjoy the city, seek the peace and prosperity of the city, promote the city, celebrate the city, and then get involved and enjoy and spend time and build friendships with those that are part of the city and do not believe the same things as us. But all the while, we're not to lose our distinctiveness. You've heard that before, be in the world, but not of the world, right? We are to live in this city and love its people, but we are not to lose our distinctiveness the distinctiveness of our faith and the culture that God has set forth for us. Now, there is discernment, right? Sometimes relationships have to end, especially in a romantic sense when you're dating somebody and they do not uphold the same values and not believe the same things and they don't have the same end of life, which has become more like Christ. You know, flirting to convert, that never works. It's a bad idea. So there are times in discernment where you may have to restrict a relationship or maybe it's not going to work out, but... At large, we are called to love and to care and to engage with those that believe differently than us, the foreigners, if you will. And honestly, what repentance may mean is not cutting that relationship out. That may be the easy thing to do. Repentance may mean calling up your friends and confessing and apologizing to them and saying, Listen, I have not been living according to what I believe. And I, I know you probably don't even care, but I needed to tell you that because I've been engaging in things with you and I've been doing things and I've been speaking and talking a certain way that is not according to what I believe. And I just wanted to ask your forgiveness for that. See, repentance requires tough, tough decisions. The repentance is difficult and that's why guilt will never produce repentance. Shame will never produce repentance. Really focusing on all of your failures 
And saying that you're going to work on them will not produce repentance. Saying that I am personally strong and I can really just clench my fists and I can move through this. I can conquer these struggles on my own. That will never produce repentance. Gratitude spurs on repentance. Think about a relationship that you have with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, a good friend. Right? You have a hard week. I don't know if you ever have hard weeks like me. You have a hard week. You're stressed. You're anxious. You're irritable. Maybe it's been a hard month. Maybe it's been a hard couple months. And this person that is really close to you, you begin to take it out on them, right? Because it's really easy to take it out on the people that you love. And so you're irritable, you're short-tempered, you don't spend time with them, you're not giving them any attention because you're just stressed, you're just burdened, you have all this going on. And yet in the midst of that, that friend or that husband or that wife or that boyfriend or that girlfriend, in the midst of the way that you're treating them, they're treating you with patience and forgiveness. And they're being thoughtful. They're trying to come alongside and support you and to encourage you in the midst of your stress. They're doing things that they know that you love that will help What is your response, the natural response that you have when you encounter something like that? It is, wow, I have an amazing friend. I have an amazing wife. I have an amazing husband. I have an incredible boyfriend or girlfriend. This could be going somewhere, right? That's your natural response. And then you may begin to think, you know what? I I shouldn't be so irritable with them. I, I shouldn't snap at them the way that I do. I, I really should schedule some time this week and the next couple of weeks to spend time with them and, and to do something we enjoy together. I need to be a little bit more thoughtful towards them as well. So your natural response is that when, you're, when you well up with gratitude at the way that somebody has treated you, when you've treated them not the same way, is repentance. It's life change, right? You begin to say, I, I shouldn't be treating them like it's the same reality with God. You have to reflect though, right? You begin to reflect on what God has done in your life, how he's been compassionate and faithful and good and patient and forgiving and merciful and gracious. And he's provided and he's delivered and he's saved. And he has all these great things planned for you. And there have been many times you've wanted nothing to do with him. You've ignored him. You've chosen your own path. You begin to worship your own gods. You begin to be obsessed and to follow a culture that is not his. And all the while, he was still faithful. He was still good. He was still loving. He was still forgiving. When you reflect on that, when you think about that, what's the response? Gratitude leading to life change. You begin to say, man, maybe I should not live this way and think this way and do these things. Because how good is God? How much does he love me? And the last response, as you begin to reflect and you begin to think on God's goodness and it wells up gratitude in you, which leads you to repentance, is that you praise. See, if you don't praise in the midst of your sin, meaning if if you just beat yourself up like, I am such a failure. I can never get this right. Every single day I'm saying I'm not going to do it again and then I do it again. And you just walk with this cloud of guilt and shame over your head and you think you're a horrible person and you're not valuable and how could God ever love you? If that's the reality and that's how you feel, then you haven't confessed and repented. Because when you confess to God and when you seek repentance, you come face to face with God's forgiveness and his mercy. 
You come face to face that he is faithful to you when you're faithless. You come to see that he provides for you when you want nothing to do with him. That he delivers you when you're trying to deliver yourself. That is what brings you to praise. When you confess and repent, you come to see who God is and the fact that he loves you and nothing, nothing that you do or you will ever do can separate you from the love of God. That brings about praise in your life. And that's exactly what happens in this passage. As they're reflecting on God's goodness and they begin to confess and repent, it says that they stood in their places and they read from the book of Revelation of God, the first five books of the Bible. Their God, for a quarter of the day, for another quarter of the day, they confess and worship their God. You think church is long? My goodness. They've been standing for hours reading scripture, and they stand for a few more hours worshiping and confessing. I mean, this is like a whole day or half a day deal, standing on their feet. But look how they end their time of confession and repentance. Verses 4 and 5, it says, A group of Levites, the pastors and the servant leaders of the community, said, On your feet, as if they haven't been on their feet long enough already, right? It's a half a day they've been on their feet. Bless God, your God, forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, exalted above all blessing and praise. You're the one, God, you alone. You made the heavens, the heavens of heavens, and all angels, the earth and everything on it, the seas and everything in them. You keep them all alive. Heaven's angels worship you. And they continue reflecting on God's goodness and his deliverance and his faithfulness and his salvation for 31 more verses. They begin to list out all these specific things that God has done. How he's been good. How he's loved them and become passionate and gracious and provided for them. They begin to think about what he's done recently in their lives. And you can see the trajectory here, right? They reflect on God's goodness and his faithfulness. It draws gratitude up in their hearts, which leads them to repentance. They cut off relationships and make some hard decisions, and they endeavor forward to follow God according to how he's set forth. And then they praise him. They worship him because he's good. And these are really uh, good things to talk about, right? They're better to put into practice. See, if we're going to make our house a home, which is the title of our series, then you have to return home. You have to return back to Jesus Christ, confess and repent and think on all the ways that he has been good and he has been faithful and he has provided for you, which ultimately will culminate in praise. And so if you receive our worship program, our worship primer that comes out on the weekends and you read about confession and repentance and you saw at the bottom that I said to bring a journal and a pen or something to write with and probably most of the men in the room ignored that. As, I'm not going to say who, but someone earlier told me, I don't own a journal. I said, what? Come on, moleskins are so in. But if you brought a journal or a pen, now is your time to use that. If not, you can use a worship program in front of you. If you have a pen or there's some pencils in the pews before you, or you can use your phone. That's a great thing. We can still write on our phone. Because here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to practice this. I don't know if you've ever done this before in church, but we're going to do it. We're going to spend a few minutes, and we're going to reflect. We're actually going to reflect individually on the ways that God has been gracious and good and compassionate to you. 
How has he provided for you? How has he delivered you? How has he saved you? And what has he saved you from? And be specific. I want you to use your phone. I want you to write. I want you to draw. I want you to be specific as they were specific, listing out very specific things that God has done. Because what happens when you reflect on the goodness of God is that it wells up gratitude in you, which leads to repentance and then will lead to praise. There's a passage in verse 31 that I added in the bottom here. As they're reflecting, this is near the end of their time of reflection, and it says that still, because of your great compassion, you didn't make a total end to them. You didn't walk out and leave them for good. Yes, you are a God of grace and compassion. Think about that. How has God been good to you? How has he not forsaken you and has never left you and he never will? How has he been compassionate to you? Think about the specific times it has happened. And the band is going to come up when I pray in a moment. And they're going to play a song and sing over you, sing truth over you as you reflect and as you think and as you process God's goodness. And then at the end of the song, they're going to ask you to stand. And I'm going to encourage you right now to do something that may be totally uncomfortable for you. But maybe last week, if you were here, you realized as we talked that worship is to be expressive and not personality driven. And sometimes together as a church, we do something. I'm going to ask you when they stand and we sing this last part of this song together after we spend some time reflecting to either open your hands or raise your hands, whatever one you want, you get the choice. But it's a symbol of praise. It's a symbol of opening your hands to receive or to symbolically open that God, my heart, my life is yours or to extend it to them. Last week in Nehemiah 8, it says that the people lifted their hands in worship. So I want to encourage you to do that as we do it together. As you reflect for a few minutes on God's goodness, how could you not open your hands? How could you not want to sing because of how faithful he's been to you? So I'm going to pray and then a band's going to come up and just spend some time quietly yourself reflecting on what God has done in your life. Let's pray.